Okay, we are in the middle of one of the warnings in Hebrews. There are several of them. Warnings about not listening to God, falling away from God, not paying attention to the gospel. And here, the section we've been reading in Hebrews chapter 3 is based on a long citation of Psalm 95, which we looked at. And Psalm 95 was um, referring to events that are written about in Numbers chapter 14 and also mentioned a number of times in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Old Testament. And the event was what happened at Kadesh when Israel refused to go into the Promised Land based on the fact that they didn't believe God was going to keep his promises. And so when the spies came back and only Caleb and Joshua were willing to believe God that indeed they had been brought out of Egypt in order to be brought into the promised land. So they had to stay there for 40 years while this whole generation died off that they refused to go in. Now Hebrews 3 is taking that event and speaking to Hebrew Christians who are being tempted to go away from Messiah and back to the the temple worship and the animal sacrifices and that sort of thing, is taking that event and warning them that these Hebrew Christians are facing a similar situation and that if they were if they are not going to enter into the messianic rest that's promised to them, and that they want to go back, that they're going to follow in the example of their forefathers and they're going to die in unbelief. And they're being warned to not do that. So that's our context in Hebrews. And we were at verse 13, Hebrews 3.13. It says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, it's a very fantastic verse. And something I've been thinking about since the conference and some of the emails I've been getting, well, not just from a conference, from people locally, but also from around the country, because the emails are saying, an amazing number of them, that people cannot find churches that are teaching the Bible, and therefore, what should one do? Just do, do not fellowship what's at all, or just stay home, or, or you know, what? And I don't ever encourage that. I, I, I think that it would be better, and I've told a couple people, it would be better if you can find three or four families that want to study the Bible and get together in a home and, and do so than to not fellowship. The reason being is that not fellowshipping is putting ourselves in a vulnerable position and, uh, in regards to the deceitfulness of sin and the lies of Satan. Because I, I, I took a little flack for this one. Brian and I teach that fellowship is, should be considered a means of grace, which um, Lutheran and Reformed people would deny. They say the means of grace are baptism, the Lord's Supper, and, and the preaching of the Word. And so, uh, what's that? Communion. Yeah, Word and Sacrament. They say the two sacraments would be communion and baptism. And so, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with including those three things, but I'm going by Acts 2.42 that they fellowshiped around 
the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. And so this one Missouri Synod lady who's been emailing me, very bright, just absolutely wonderful love for the truth, she says, well, you shouldn't be adding prayer and fellowship even though those are good things as far as means of grace. I said, well, why are you just only following your Lutheran tradition? Here's Acts 2.42. Well, because prayer is something we do, and means of grace should be something God does. So then I went back and I said, well, taking communion is something we do. And then, and then she says, no, that's comes from God. And I said, well, so does prayer and so does fellowship. <laughs> so, uh, the reason I add these things, why? Why? Because we want to know. People want to know, okay, if I can't do all this theophastic ministry and getting new revelations and casting out demons and inner healing and all these things that you say are from God, what do I do? How is it going to happen that God will change my life? As a born-again Christian, what does God expect of me? And what do I avail myself that will put myself under God's gracious means? And I'd say that based on verses like this one we're looking at, encourage one another day after day, lest be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, doesn't it imply that one of God's gracious means is how he works through the body as we care for one another? And pray for one another and encourage one another. I, and so I, Ryan and I are going to stick with this, even though it's not following Lutheran, good Lutheran tradition. Um, but um, not to discount the ones that, that they believe, because I do believe in word and sacrament. And although we don't use the term sacrament, we use the term ordinance. So encourage one another day by day. How eat how. How likely is it to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? 100%. <laughs> it's, very, it's very likely if you don't. Yeah, it doesn't take, it's sort of like gravity. <laughs> or aging, or whatever. It's sort of like uh, cleaning the house. If you don't do anything, what happens? It gets dirty. And it doesn't need to have many people in it for that to happen. Before our house filled back up with kids, um, Diane used to go away. She's got a, last summer, toward the end of the summer, she bought park interest in a trailer down there where her dad has a trailer. So she was going away for a few days to be with her dad on you know, long weekends. Come back and I'm the only one in that house. Can you believe one person in a house in three days can trash it? You're good at it. <laughs> it doesn't take any extra effort. It's just I didn't even do anything. I just started coming and going. And the house is trash. <laughs> I didn't clean, did I? So I think that the deceitfulness of sin is sort of like uh, this law of physics called entropy, that everything tends toward disorder. It's because of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that every one of us is... Faced by temptation, within and without. And believing lies rather than the truth is an easy thing to do because that's all we hear. And so when we come together doing something as simple as what we're doing right here, we, we come together, we open up our scriptures, we read the Word of God, and we encourage one another in, in the scripture. That is more powerful than all the counseling and techniques and man-made ideas that you could ever dream of. 
People are running around trying to get their needs met, and if they did this simple thing, and and I, another email I got. This just I've been overwhelmed with emails, but I like it. I love interacting with people. Somebody said, "Why is there so much sin in the church?" And um, and this emailer said basically, our churches are full of counselors. They're full of twelve-step groups. We've never had so much stuff trying to help people, but I've never seen so much sin and immorality and Christians that are living like the world. What's going on? And you know what my answer was? Because those things aren't means of grace. If you take the Word of God away from people, and you take fellowship and prayer around God's Word away, and you replace it with something else, then all you have is the flesh. You don't have anything that's going to change a life. And it's a vicious circle. So you take away the scripture and then you have problems. And when you have problems, you see that as a proof that you need more counselors and more, and more 12-step groups. So you get more of those things and people have more problems and it's a vicious circle. And to stop the vicious circle, we need to get back to what the, they did in the early church was they fellowshiped around the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, and prayer. And God uses that to change lives. And if you, we do need church discipline and we have people that fall into sin, but we use the means that God gives to deal with it, not just turn them into uh, turn the church into something that it isn't. But I think that the concept of what why is there more sin in the church? If you go back to a Puritan church where there's not as much overt, or some of the Calvinistic churches, the that was coming out of the Reformation, there's not overt sin, but we buy you into a bind, we're going to beat the crap out of you if you do sin, so then you
I think it could be translated exhort. Let me look here. Exhort? Exhort. 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 Daily. <laughs> is it the Spanish, the true translation? <laughs> I love the. <laughs> I've got these. It's going to take me a little longer to find things because I got these new progressive lenses, and I'm just I'm fishing all over. And you, you see this little bitty. There's this little bitty place that's in focus somewhere in the middle of the page.
Anyone can avail themselves of the public means of grace without any special help. He says, you take your two feet and you walk down into the church and you sit yourself under the gospel. You do that. And God's the one that converts you. Yeah, they do believe in fellowship of Lutherans. <laughs> in other words, the gospel is accessible, and he says, whosoever, come and drink of the water of life freely. The, the universal call of the gospel is absolutely true, and I would never back away from it. Take your two feet, bring yourself into that church, sit down, and listen to the gospel. That's what Walter said. You know, let God deal with converting people. <laughs> So I, I like that. So it's still called today. Here's your chance. Now, you know, when I was reading, he wrote that in 1877. I was reading that, and I, you know what I thought? Would to God it was true today that if you took yourself down to church and set yourself in a pew, that you'd be sitting under the gospel. The sad thing is you can actually do that and still not get the gospel. What a shame that is, huh? Let's be hardened by deceitfulness of sin. How, how does sin deceive just using my personal testimonies, growing up in a Christian family and leaving home for the service, I was uh, footloose and fancy free and away from my folks and away from my church and away from things that I was familiar with. And I was just going to taste the world for a moment. I made a decision to do so. It wasn't a big deal. And 23 years later, I returned to the Lord. So one step at a time, your heart hardens and hardens and hardens and hardens. And I never meant to go out into the world very deep, but I was way over my head very quickly. You got in bondage 23 years later before you came back out. I'm going to say the, the same thing I was telling I think that sin, the deceitfulness of sin, has just as much or maybe a worse effect on Phariseeism. The fact that we bemoan the sin of the church is one thing, but if we get back to a Pharisaical church, the Pharisees were righteous. But they were more hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because they thought they were righteous mm-hmm. than the poor sinners that were sinning. The self-righteousness is just it's as worse. sinful or not worse than unrighteousness. And actually, we were I preached on that last Sunday out of Matthew. Remember where he says, The harlots and publicans will enter the kingdom before you? Wow. They didn't like hearing that. And when they think that's when we talk about the sin in the church, we have to be careful that's not what we're looking for. I'm going to read Kistemacher here if I can get these glasses to work. Here we go. <laughs> I'm just going to get some big old line trifocals and let people know I'm old. <laughs> sin is regarded. <laughs> At least I can see. <laughs> Sin is regarded as an agent. Here's, here's what Kistemacher says. Sin is regarded as an agent that hardens man's heart. Note that the verb to harden is presented in the passive voice so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hardening is demonstrated by a refusal to hear the voice of God and a determined desire to act contrary to everything classified as faith and faithfulness. As a sly, deceptive agent of Satan, sin enters the heart of a man and there causes the growth and development of unbelief, which becomes evident in hardening of the spiritual arteries. <laughs> Kiss the martyr. So, sin is a deceiver. And then the agent ultimately is Satan, who told Adam and Eve that you should be like God. You're not going to die. 
Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Satan doesn't come along with something that's loathsome to your eyes to tempt you. Um, he comes along with something that looks very good and is very appealing. And that's how sin deceives. Well, let's look up some cross-references. Diane, Proverbs 28, 26. Dean, oh, you got a hard one. Obadiah 1.3. Find it quick. <laughs> Pete, Acts 11.23. Linda, Romans 7.11. Leif, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Karen, 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. And, uh, Carl already read Hebrews 10.24. Alex Lamb. There he is, too. <laughs> oh, um, 11.23. Okay, Proverbs 28.26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. That's an interesting thing. No, no, you trust in man is cursed. Yeah, Jeremiah 17. Cursed is he who trusts in man. Um... What's in the heart? Sick. Desperately sick. What did Paul say? That was, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Okay, um, Obadiah 1.3. The pride of thine heart <coughs> hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground. So you're all, the, the, the proud, there's also like Satan in, in um, Isaiah 14, but the proud one is dwelling on high and is being deceived by, by his own sin. Obadiah 1.3. Actually, you know what that is about, though? Obadiah, I think it's about Edom. Isn't, uh, isn't Obadiah uh, a taunt against Edom? Edom was supposed to be Israel's brother, and they always ate and abetted the the enemies of Israel, so Obadiah is a taunt against Edom because they helped the Israel's enemies. How many of you know it's a bad thing to help Israel's enemies? You should know that if you come here. <laughs> Some people don't know that. <laughs> yeah, I hope they remember that. Okay, Acts 11.23. But he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. That was Paul, who I think, was it Paul? Coming back and encouraging the brothers. Or Peter, was it Peter? Okay. Okay, Rome, um, Romans 7 11. For sin, seeing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and the commandment, that's Paul's lament in Romans, 11, Romans 7. Sin deceived me, taking opportunity through the commandment and, and killed me. The commandment of God is holy, but the law, the law of God slayed in Paul the sinner because he found himself being covetous. Most of the Ten Commandments people can keep. They try hard, but the tenth one will get you every time. Thou shalt not covet. Because it goes to the heart. And the Pharisees can't change their own heart. So Paul was killed by that, he said. Which is a good thing to let him to the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Therefore encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are. There's another command to encourage one another. The same word, parakaleo, to exhort. 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. 
Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, they will not endure this sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to men. That is what a prophecy about the modern church, isn't it? In other words, you, your desires determine what teaching you're willing to listen to. So what? That boy, I think it's about that. Yeah, that, you know what? That was so good. Let's look at it again. Two Timothy four, two through four. <laughs> I want to. I want to look at that. Wow. Two Timothy four, two through four. This is what talk about marching orders for the that we need today. Here's our marching orders. What's the first thing it says here? Preach the word. It doesn't say preach Rick Warren, does it? <laughs> preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, um, whatever situation you may be in, be ready with the gospel. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now why is that going to be necessary? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. So when people don't want to hear sound doctrine, what's the answer? Preach it to them anyhow. Put a go ahead and have a smaller audience, but preach the gospel. Preach the sound doctrine. Don't allow the desires of man to dictate what comes from the pulpit. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth. That is an unbelievable prophecy about the 21st century. If I, if, if, wow. And turning aside from myths is the whole concept of mysticism. Yeah, the mysticism. Muthos. The Greek word. Yeah, Paul had no time for myths. Myths were something for the pagan. A myth was a um, sort of a mystical story that the man made up that was, was as opposed to the Hebrew idea of concrete history, the God in history. Well, mythology would be, I mean, the, all of the different people groups had their own myths. You had the, the mystery religions, you had the secret cults, you had um, Mithras, Osiris. It's the whole concept of, of acting in the spiritual with, with the man's own revelations on how we act with the spiritual. There's lots of different flavors of how we interact with the spiritual, but this one is concrete and the others are mystical. Yeah. And so the Hebrew, and there were Jewish people that got into this, like the Kabbalah. There's a Jewish mysticism too. Um, but the Hebrew understanding is that God speaks concretely through his ordained spokespersons in history. And we talked about this at the conference. It's God speaks objectively. Moses went and spoke to God and he comes down with these written tablets. Whereas the pagans are looking for myths, things that are mystical, secret. I think one of the things I think is pretty important here is this sound doctrine. Uh, that's historical Christian faith and the doctrines that have been taught throughout history in the church. And I think if we preach the word, we're going to be preaching sound doctrine right. and not looking for signs and wonders 
like barking in the spirit and slaying in the spirit and all this nonsense that so many people are seeking something like, oh, show me, Lord, show me a sign, show me a wonder. Well, we're not to seek signs and wonders. We are to preach the word and the sound doctrine. Amen. And I'll tell you what, if you preach sound doctrine, the truly regenerate will grow. You can't help it. I mean, in the sense that it's how God's work. People who are truly born of the Spirit, what did Jesus say? They hear His voice. They hear that His voice comes through the Word. Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Right. And so sound doctrine will cause growth in the hearts and lives of people who are born of the Spirit. Now, there are people who are truly born again who are sitting under this other stuff. But they're starving to death. And maybe they don't even realize what it is they're missing. Well, I think we're all agreeing about what we need. So let's continue to encourage one another day by day and encourage one another in the faith and help stand firm in the things of God. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. Now, again, we're going back to the wilderness wanderers and their bad example. Excuse me. Um, Judith, could you look up Numbers 14, 3, and 4? Yes. This 14 verse I don't think anything speaks against the assurance that a Christian has through the gospel, but it speaks against apostasy. In other words, it's, it's not given to take away our assurance. It's given to warn us against falling away. A warning is in, intended to warn. I was just reading Revelation 3. It says, if you um, hold fast, I will not remove your name. So we, so you're looking for the negative when it's stating the positive. Yeah. In this verse here, it says, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end, we have become partakers of Christ. Right. And it, yeah, that's a very good point, isn't it? So if we hold fast, we have partakers. Then partakers. If we don't hold fast, then we aren't. Yeah, if you're, you turn out to be a Judas who doesn't hold fast, what does it say about Judas? He was son of perdition. Son of perdition. It's the same verse that we were reading here. It's qualified. We have become partakers of Christ. Yeah. If it's a qualifier. If we hold fast until the end. Otherwise, you're not one. But what is the apostasy then? I mean, I don't consider the apostasy what he was talking about. You fall away, you deny Christ. Mm-hmm. Somewhere. The last fact, uh, the reformers considered it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Apostasy is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But it almost sounds like you said Christians fall away, Christians can commit apostasy, but their names can't be erased from the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm saying that the warning is given for two purposes. My, two, there's two, the warning is here for two reasons. For the nominal Christian who maybe has false assurance but hasn't really been converted, the warning is warning them about the dire consequences 
you know, of, of falling away. They need to be converted. For the, for the truly regenerate Christian whom God has redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the warning is still valid. The warning is a means God uses to keep us from doing this. In other words, the warning itself is a means that God effectively uses to keep his own from shipwreck. See, I don't believe in once saved, always saved. I believe in perseverance. You know the difference? Let me explain these, the difference, all right? We've talked about this many times, but I, don't, I always mind, don't mind going over things, okay? Once saved, always saved says this. If you make a mental ascent, if you just said, if you go forward one time at a Billy Graham crusade, or you wrote your name in the front of your Bible and said, I made a decision for Christ, or anything that you ever do, just giving mental ascent to the gospel, you're automatically written into the book of life, and you're going to be in heaven, even if you spend the rest of your life as a blasphemer. And, and that's a very crass doctrine, and I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe anybody who does turn away from Christ, does blaspheme, and does live for the devil, has any reason to have assurance of salvation. Because God's grace is not vain. Paul says that God's grace for me did not prove to be vain. So once saved, always saved, is granting assurance based on a human decision, based on the facts, and no more, without any sign of regeneration or conversion. Perseverance is based on Romans 8, 29 through 30, that all the called, all the justified, are glorified. But perseverance means that God's uh, Holy Spirit, who indwells the born-again Christian, will do whatever is necessary to keep us from falling away. And he will bring us back. And God will discipline us if needs be. He'll, Hebrews chapter 12. He'll do everything, including killing us if necessary. I mean, it says that the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So that God will cause us graciously to persevere so that we don't actually fall away. And I wrote a whole article on this, and it's called, Walk, what is it called? Led by the Spirit. And it's, and it's a survey of Romans 8 on, on the work of the Holy Spirit. Isn't, I'll take the same example, isn't it when I say, when you say mental ascent, if I put my trust in my decision, which is mental ascent, I made this decision, yeah. that's trusting man. And I should, I should have, a, I have a false assurance that I'm trusting yeah. man, and that isn't salvific. Right. It doesn't lead to salvation. If I trust in God, and put my trust in God that has its work, not because it's me, but because God has its work, and I've joined myself with God by trusting God and what He's given me. God is at work in you to dwell and to do and he can't fail. His good pleasure. If you haven't read it, I wrote an article on this that explains it the best I think I can explain it, and it's called Led by the Spirit, and it's based on Romans 8. Romans 8 is the big reason I believe this more than any other chapter in the Bible. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. And, but I don't, but don't, I don't confuse that with this crass, once saved, always saved, because that's not biblical.
I have them say it to me. I have them making that up. Yeah, it's too Yeah. 
It's, it, well, in, in the case of the Hebrews, the warning was that they were going to leave aside the high priest, Messiah, and they're going to go back to the Jewish system of sacrifices and the Jewish high priest. And, and, and the author of Hebrews is calling that apostasy. And what, why would it be blaspheming the Spirit? Because you're doing the same thing to Pharisees. Because you're rejecting that Messiah is the anointed one. And so ultimately, the, the apostasy is a rejection of Messiah. Apostasy isn't that a Christian fell into some sin, because Christians do fall into some sin. Some people think of that. There's a kind of there's a sense the word is there, though. Was Peter? Was some kind of apostasy that Peter denied Christ in some sense? Yeah, in, in his fear of man, but he was converted, and it led to his conversion. I um, again, and that, that shows you. Look at Peter and look at Judas. I think that's a good, good example. They both denied Christ, but one not permanently. One of them was convicted and smitten, and he went and confessed his sins to Mother Mary. No, that was the movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> the Bible didn't say that. <laughs> he. Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> is, it, uh, is it too arrogant or is it too ignorant to just bring your salvation down to an elementary level where you know you plug in a, a, if you've got a light bulb that works and you plug it into an outlet that works the lights going to come on you know? is it just too like I said ignorant or to to know I've accepted Christ and it says to turn away from 180. Yeah. And now that I'm moving in this different direction, that there's going to be changes and differences in the body and the mind and the heart. Yes, indeed. So now, I hear you talking about this mental ascent of decision making or whatever it is. Yeah. Christ. And I'm not saying that we need to make that judgment call on these people. But yet, when they tell you that they're a believer or I'm born again, and they actually have not even made the turn, right. and they just keep walking the way they can. Right. I mean, I find it hard to even fathom that the Spirit is even with them. Well, that's the concern, and I think MacArthur has been led to charge about the true gospel preaching here in the last 20 years. And, and I think that's been his greatest work, MacArthur, starting with the book, The Gospel According to Jesus, then his book, uh, the Gospel according to the Apostles, and always written this one hard to believe, continually is going on that same point, that conversion is not just man signing some decision card. It's, 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 it's changing from trusting self and the world to trusting God fully. And it is a conversion in the sense of repentance means uh, turning around fully. Now, one thing I've witnessed so much is this, the fact that it seems that people are all of a sudden worried about their family and their friends. And that's what softens up all these churches to garbage. Is they're all concerned, well man, are my parents actually going to go to, you know, go yeah, to heaven? You, you broaden the gate to get more people through. You know, yeah. Yeah, and so, if you, honestly, it's good to be concerned about our families and friends, but if, if we're concerned, then we would preach the gospel. But not in denial of what they are and where they're going. Right. You, you can't get somebody to happen by just changing the definition of what it means to be saved. Yes. I'd like to address that situation because I think 
I've got to remember this Latin phrase. Ec opere operato, I think it is. And it means by the work done. And so the, the Trent is saying you don't have the righteousness of Christ imputed. It's something you've got to work for. And you don't, and you don't get it until you actually are totally just. And the what you do between now and getting just is the work. By the work done. Oh, we've got, they've got, look, what, seven sacraments? Does anybody know? I think the Catholics have lots more sacraments. Oh, it is. But anyhow, they're saying, here are these works. You go to Mass. You go to confession. You go, you go to um, do all the sacraments and follow the holidays that we have, have. And you do all this stuff. And you have to keep doing it. And then when you didn't really do it well enough, then there's purgatory. Okay? But there's this work, 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 work. By the work done. Now, Luther... And all the other reformers, in denying that, are saying that justification is by faith. And that a person who is justified by faith is righteous. Now, legally. And that the process, rather than by the work done, they came up with this phrase, means of grace. And the idea of the difference, what's the difference between means of grace and by the work done? Well, I'd like to say God's gracious means. So what we're doing to come here and to sit under the gospel is something that we do. But it's not something that we're trusting. We're not trusting our act of coming to church. We're trusting the gospel. We're availing ourselves of God's word because that's the means God uses to change us. And so there is even the means of grace are received by faith through grace, and not by the work done. Do you see the difference? God is using His means. So yeah, we do believe that there are means. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because God is at work in you, to will and to do His good pleasure. And so the foundation always remains firm, justification by faith. Once you go back to Trent, you just pull the rug off from under everybody. And I would argue that most modern theology is so close to Trent that they, they can't even tell the difference. The only difference between most modern Protestants and Trent is that we don't have a purgatory and we have less sacraments. A different pope. We have a different pope. Anybody else want to say something? Yes. We had a chance to listen to Griffin last year in Westminster Confession. One of the things that he said in, in one of those tapes that really stuck with me is Works are absolutely necessary, but are not meritorious. Okay. There's no meritorious work. The good works are absolutely necessary. Right. But there's no merit. They they spring from the gospel by faith rather than something we add to the gospel. Yes, Bill. Well, uh, historically, the
and it's, it's, it's really uh, an Aristotelian thing. So it's not even the, the gospel, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's like Babylon. You know, you have to do these works, right. you know, to become more like Christ and all this stuff. Then they, you have to understand what they believe Christ to be. Yeah, I, it's, it's really a sad situation. I think every it would do us well to read the Council of Trent. I read the whole section on justification in Trent. And I'll tell you what, most modern so-called Protestants would not find anything they disagree with in Trent because they've just been boiled slowly in this oil uh, of human ability and they don't realize what's happening to them. Well, how far did we get? Two verses? <laughs> Oh, we did more, too. Look at all the cross-references. All right. God bless you.